This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Magnus, can you share some context to your role and responsibilities originally at Lagergrant? Sure. I mean, as you know, Lagergrant is a Swedish listed serial acquirer today, having a market cap around uh, 2 billion uh, euros. And Lagergrant is actually a spin off from Bergman and Beving, a spin off made in, in 2001. And I started Lagergrant 2007 and then as the deputy CEO of the group. And, and in that role, uh, I had uh, a group responsibility for M&A. And maybe I spent like 60% of my time on, on M&A issues. And during my 14 years at Larkrans, um, I ended the beginning of 2021. I was involved in closing 51 acquisitions. Uh, I also spend like 30% of my time developing uh, the, the group company uh, group companies through board work. So I also was involved in the kind of organic development in, 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 the, in, the, in the portfolio that, that we have during my time. And lastly, 10, 10% of my time, I was time of group, group work, like uh, investor relations and those type of things. And... All this transformed, you know, in building uh, Lorikans to what it is today. And that was really an exciting journey. During my time at Lorikans, uh, the, the, the stock price increased by close to 2,300%. Uh, and that translates into, a, you know, a stock price increase of 25% uh, per year. So, so that was a very exciting uh, tour we had there. Well, and just... Can, can we step back then to when you originally joined Lagerkrans? And like, what, what did the business look like? What were the what were the main segments and products they were typically selling? Yeah, when I started Lagerkrans then back in 2007, the, the group had a profit margin of 5%. And, and if we look at the, the businesses that Lagerkrans was owning at that point in time, you know, product companies was close to non-existing. So instead, the group then consisted mainly of component distribution businesses within electronic and telecom. And those companies were typically a niche within their areas. Uh, and, 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 um, but, but basically, the, the growth and acquisition uh, that at that point in time was aimed to, to continue within the business area and the business scope of Larkans at that point in time. But in those niches, you know, double-digit profit margin was never heard of. Why was it difficult to get a double-digit profit margin? No, I mean, distribution business within electronic and component businesses, it's, it's, uh, if you look in, in those industries, uh, the competition is quite intensive um, and the margin is typically very low. Well, is that main, mainly because what the products are more commoditized and there's really strong suppliers like with big market shares that make it hard to get pricing? Yeah, it's a combination of, of big international global suppliers on, on, the, uh, one, on, on one end. And on the customer side, it's typically big customers like Ericsson and Nokia in the telecom sector, big companies. So you, you tend to be squeezed in between as a distributor then. And so how do you define the difference then? You mentioned product companies versus, call it, 
reseller or pure distribution business? Like, how would you describe a product company? A product company is, for me, a company who owns the IP. I mean, you don't need to produce the products, but, but you should own the IP of the products. For me, a distribution company is kind of buying someone else's products, selling them in, in their markets. I think that is the kind of distinction in, in my mind. Well, and so originally for Lagerkrantz, when you had this electronics components, that was simply the reselling component business. Yeah, with some value add, of course, you know, doing openly within those sectors, you add some software. So there was there was value added stuff. There was value added. And that's why it was still 5%. Right, but it was still, okay, so otherwise, otherwise it'd be zero. <laughs> yeah, or close yeah, to zero. Okay, okay and, and just on, so on that piece then, so for different market segments, so like outside of electronics, whether it's in construction or many other manufacturing with the with the pure reselling plus a bit of value added distribution, like on top value add, can you still can you get to ten percent and above, or is it only those product companies with own the IP can typically get to those that, mar- that those margins? No, if you find niche companies where you don't have big suppliers that you're buying the products from, and, and the customer is is more fragmented, and and you find a, a, a niche, definitely you can have profit margins about ten percent. But that's typically not with it in the electronics and telecom. So what did Lagerkrantz do to evolve? 11% margin today from 4 5% 20 years ago. Yeah, getting where Lagerkrantz is today, it has really been a transformation journey. When I joined in 2007, we, we developed a new growth strategy. And it was not rocket science to figure out if Lagerkrantz should be able to deliver double-digit profit margins. We need to do something differently. And the new growth strategy was based on acquisition of prior companies instead of distribution companies. And as I said earlier, other niches than electronics and telecom. So we started to allocate most of our capital into acquisition of niche B2B product companies with a margin well above 10% and and with kind of addressing an underlying growing niche. So when we set that strategy in uh, motion, Lucky enough, we were successful in the, in the first acquisitions of those product companies addressing new niches. And by that, the, the shareness of investing in new niches was eroding internally because there was a resistance initially going outside the comfort zone of, of, uh, of the people in the group because they has been you know, grown up within, within electronic and telecom distribution businesses. So uh, with that type of uh, successful initial acquisition of prior companies, together with recruitment of new people in, in senior position with a background in other industries than electronic and, and telecom distribution business was, was a way to evolve the business. And that has built the foundation for the current Lagerkrantz. But most of this kind of profit improvement is, is related to, to the acquisitions made uh, w- within um, within new niches. Lockdown still owns uh, companies doing, you know, this distribution with electronic and telecom distribution business, but they are still below the, the 10%. So, so they didn't spin them off or sell them? Why not? It's still still within the group. 
Why did they not sort of spin them out? I, I think you need to put that question to the, to large grounds today, but but um... yeah, and, and so I mean, it's 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 pretty interesting how you know the the, the the you must build a platform with the distribution businesses, then you add on the high you know the product companies as you call them, right? The niche product businesses to drive the drive the margins. What is the biggest risk in that strategy? I would say, I mean, as I initially said, there was a resistance internally uh, because you get into new industries, uh, you know, new markets, new niches, uh, having products that you haven't worked with before. So I think that that is, of course, a higher risk than buying companies within the industries you already are present within. but as I said, luckily we were successful in the first kind of product company acquisitions, and that kind of built some comfort within within the group that this is actually doable. And I think also in our very decentralized, uh, this is valid for Larkans as well for Bamana Beving. We we are not operationally involved in the companies. So, so really, if you also, as part of the DD, make sure that you have a good management in place, um, you can uh, still add value so say, as, as, as a decentralized owner, but, but you make sure that the risk is, is much lower in, in, in terms of getting into new areas. And so you was aiming for, is it 10% EBIT or EBIT plus amortization margins when you was buying, buying product companies? EBITDA, okay. So looking back then at your time, what were the major lessons then that you take from Lagerkrans that you could apply today to Bergman and Bevin? Uh, both Lagerkrans and, and Bergman and Beving is working with a very decentralized governance model. So it's really to make sure you have the right people in the teams across the group. Without the right people, you will never make it. So that, I think, is, is really key. You can have a great business concept, a company having a very strong position in, in their markets. Uh, but if you don't have the right team in place, it can go sideways or even down. Business the unit managers, you mean, or well, who do you mean? It's, I would say it's on all levels. I mean, you need to address this topic on all levels. It's not uh, you know, good enough to have it on that on one level. You have it to have it across the whole group. How decentralized really are you like? Does the individual companies, they have their own IT systems, finance teams, HR, or is some of that shit? Yes, I would say the, 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 the kind of uh, guiding principle is that uh, there is no central systems, no central processes, HR, uh, or any other kind of functional departments in the group. So each company should be you know, self-sufficient uh, by their own. Then, of course, some of the companies has joined forces around different aspects. They share HR resources. We have some companies that share the same ERP platforms or other type of systems. But then it's more driven from the companies as such. It's not that we as an owner dictate them to now you have to do like this or like that. And, And the business logic for us is we never want an MD in a company claim they don't deliver on the targets because we have forced them to do something. So we would we, we would like to make sure that we can have, have the management team 100% accountable for the development of the company. 
And so back back to this comparison between Bergman and Bevin and, and Lagerkrans, you know, twenty years ago. How do you compare, you know, the, the two companies? You know, when you when you started at Lagerkrans and the journey that company went on to where where you are today at, at Bergman and Bevin. As I said earlier, you know, when I started, the opportunity to get ten plus profit margin within the with the the, the company portfolio back in two thousand and seventeen. Would has been, if not impossible, very challenging. So, so the the, the Larkans world was very dependent on acquisitions, I would say. Uh, one major difference is that the companies we own today at Bergman and Beving, it's doable to reach a ten percent profit margin. So, I would say that the quality of the the business that we own today is better and higher than, than I joined Lorikrans back in 2007. The, the opportunities are greater. But, but I know there are no quick fixes. <laughs> it will require diligent and persistence work across across the group. But, but my expectation is that we will improve our profit margin with 15, uh, our profit, sorry, by 15 to 20% per year. And our profit margin in the range of half a percent to one and a half percent per year uh, the years to come, uh, and we have had that traction for the last two years, and and Larkans increased their profit margin with average of 0.8% since 2017. So by that, I, I kind of indicate that the, the potential in the current BNB compared with my starting point in Larkans is it's greater. Why is the portfolio higher quality, Bergman & Bevin, today versus when you started at Lagerkrans? The... Um, Percentage of own product companies is is greater within Berman Beving compared to, to Larkans, and they are also working in industries where I think the the conditions is more favorable than than in in the telecom and and, and electronic. Well, construction and manufacturing. You, why would you pref- why would you prefer that than telecom and electronics? Uh, going back to the, I mean, um, it, it goes back to the the size of the customers. They tend to be a little bit smaller. Uh, I also think that the Bayman Beving product is kind of not addressing the the big, big, big markets within those segments. It's really about uh, finding niches within those markets. And and when when you find niches, the competition is not that intensive. Uh, and also the the customer within niches uh, typically appreciate uh, high quality. Uh, it's not about buying the cheapest product is buying the, the right product and that offsets part of the of the price pressure this is one thing that i found really interesting when going through some of the numbers is that bergman and bevin's gross margins are you know really high like even today of 40 43 percent 44 percent you know higher whereas Lagerkrantz started off at 25 percent and they're still only at 38 percent but but their EBIT margins for Bergman and Bevan is, you know, eight percent lower. So, why is that? <laughs> it's a very good question, and I I had that question day one when I joined. <laughs> but but the reason is actually we have, uh, um, uh, we own in the group two wholesale companies, and the turnover of those wholesale companies is is together roughly two billion sec. That's that's two hundred million euros, roughly. Nearly half of it of total revenue. Yeah, it, it's kind of forty percent of the revenue. When you mean wholesale, you mean just pure reselling distribution? 
Yeah, they're basically distributed to, to, to resellers. No value add. Yeah, so and, and uh, why the, the gross money is so high is that those wholesaler companies are also wholesaling our product company's product. So we get margins in, in both in the wholesale business and the product businesses. So those together get, gets a very healthy gross margin. But then we need to bear the cost of two business models. So the cost, the cost is much higher in Bavana Bevin because we need to have two business models to generate that gross margin. So 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 what the so the SGNA cost or the labor, the 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 overheads the cost of sales uh, percent is much higher since we need to carry two business models to generate that gross profit in in those uh, in some of the product com- product areas. Well and so how can you improve margins given that structure? I mean, if you look at the gross profit margin, we have improved it during the last quarters. And, and, and one of the reasons for that improvement is that we have now uh, emphasized the focus on areas where we add value to our customers. And that is in the areas where we have uh, typically better margins. So we have uh, uh, start to phase out low volume, uh, sorry, high volume, low margin businesses. Uh, and that is typically business where we don't add as much value and it's not as niche as we want to be in the future. So you effectively have these two large distribution businesses. I think it was Skydo or Skydo is one of them. It's Shrida is one. They're working within the PPE segment, the, the people protection equipment. And then we have uh, Luvna. So you have these two businesses where you can effectively then sell your proprietary brands that you own, you go and acquire through those distribution businesses and and then kind of whittle out or sell some of the or reduce some of the lower 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 value add revenue that you generate then of course our, our product companies have other channels to the market than than the, the two wholesaler businesses we own so that's just uh, some of the what's channels. the advantage of owning that original wholesale business then could you not just have a pure i Hundred percent IP owned proprietary stuff, and sell it through that. Have a relationship with them externally. Uh, you can do a lot of things, <laughs> and and uh, this is of a historical reason. So if we look at what what we will acquire going forward, I can promise you it will not be be wholesaler businesses. So this is a kind of a historical heritage uh, that we have. Uh, since the build-up of Bermond of Eving. And so does Lagerkrans or Indutrade, do they have that type of business internally as well, those big distributions? Um, Lagerkrans, I know, doesn't doesn't have that at all, and, and I don't think Indutrade have it either. What advantage does it bring you as a company to have those big wholesalers internally? I mean, they, 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 they are, as, as I was earlier said, they are a channel uh, primary in the Nordic uh, for our product companies. Uh, so, so that could be partly an advantage, I would say, but not a necessity. Well, it's interesting because the long run EBIT margin of Birmingham Bevin, given that structure, could be higher than other players. Given, given, given where it is today when you have... You know, you, you have a high proprietary mix. I think it's, what, 68% Lagerkrantz is kind of similar. Or, yeah, a bit higher, 70%. Uh, 
Yeah, and I, and I have been communicated that we should double the profit and reach 500 million profit EBIT latest fiscal year 25-26. And, and then having fiscal year 2021 20, as the starting point. And, and, and if we look at the history, I mean, this expansion should be self-financed. And, and that is something we have operated uh, with that type of principle since our foundation back in 1906. It's really about our companies generating cash flow that enable us to, to continue to invest in the companies that we own and, and then combine that with acquiring new companies to, to the group. Doesn't the EBITA over working cap need to be like 45, 50% to be self-financing? Yeah, that that is one. It depends on, you know, how much you invest in the companies that you own and and what type of dividend you, you, you have and, and so forth. But uh, we have the principle and, and the, the, the target to reach the, the 45% uh, for the ratio profit of working capital. As it is, as you say, the, the long term, you need to be on that level to be self-financed. And so why is it relatively low then? Is it back to what you just mentioned about the wholesale businesses? That could be part of the explanation, but the major explanation currently that we don't see an improvement in that ratio is is the kind of disturbance in the in the in the, in the logistics flows and the product flows. So we have built extensive you know safety stock during the last you know one and a half year, but over time uh, we I, I expect that to go down, uh, and, and that by itself will improve the the profit to working capital ratio. Can it get to 45%, 50% like the others, though? It seems like a... Yes. Yes, it can. And that's the target we have. Latest by 25, 26 as well. So reducing the inventory a bit and improving the kind of payables and, and, then, and then also improving, adding, adding higher margin revenue. Yeah. Yes. I mean, given the history of Bowman and Bevan, this is the, the, the original <laughs> the original serial acquirer, like the kind of pioneered this model... Why has this company somewhat been lagging behind then the other players over the last 10, 15 years? Yeah, as you were saying, the leading Swedish business newspaper, Dagens Industri, had a two-page article about Bermann & Bering last autumn. And they labeled us as the ancestor mother company of stock market rockets. And, and as you may know, uh, we are the ancient mother to four other listed serial acquire companies on the Swedish stock exchange, AdTech, AdLife, Momentum Group, and, and also Larkhansdam. And, and um, uh, AdTech and, and Larkhans was spun off in, in 2001. And in that point on time, um, Bergman & Beving was named B&B Tools. And... and in that, uh, for, for one decade, um, the aim was to build one company. That was actually the label. That was really against the whole DNA of Bergman & Beving with a high degree of decentralization. That was a period of centralization. And, and the aim was then to integrate the companies all the way from the product companies through the wholesaler companies to the reseller companies. And during that time, Berman uh, B&B2s acquired a lot of resellers with the aim then to get, you know, excellent margins and, and high efficiency through these integrations. But that never materialized. Uh, so back in 2017, the owners decided to split out, to spin off the, the reseller part. 
uh, and that was 2017, and that is now part of Aligo, the Aligo Group. That's a Swedish listed company as well. But then uh, from 2017, the the the, the Bärman of today was founded, and and then we had a lot of uh, cleanup to do, to be honest, for for two years, and since 2020 we have, we have done the necessary cleanup. And we now have an expansion plan, having grown the profit for the last 10 quarter. So, so I, I would say uh, the, the main reason that we have lagged behind the, the, the peers or, or the, the other original Bayman and Bering companies is that we went away from this decentralized uh, concept and went into a centralized uh, ambition that never created any value to be honest and so those reseller businesses that were spun out they were similar to the two businesses that you own today that are 40 percent of revenues but you decided to keep them no it was actually no uh, the reseller business is is the, the, the one who you know that stores out out in the countries where where the construction worker and the industrial worker uh, go into the stores and pick up the things they need for the day Alternatively, they go out to the end customers, the industries, and, and uh, decide, you know, what the, that specific industry needs, uh, what product they need. So it's a retail. The wholesale is then serving the resellers. Right. So they was basically they were trying to integrate wholesale and retail. Yes. And product, which, which goes against the whole history of. <laughs> yes. I mean, but yes. how did that happen? Like, well, who, what? That was, uh, I mean, that was before my time, so I don't actually have an in-depth uh, knowledge about that. But um. yeah, and so when you took over the role, how did you approach returning the organization back to its roots? I mean, to be honest, this process has been going on since 2017. Uh, really, about getting back to the uh, original Bayman Beving DNA. Uh, but, but uh, during the, my since I joined the company, we have a kind of accelerated that. Uh, so I would say we are very very similar to to the, like other peers like Larkans and Antec in terms of the governance model and, and the philosophy we have around you know uh, running the group and building the group. So looking specifically at the at the strategy then, and, and specific you know, like you mentioned, your buy-in niche niche companies how do you define niche product companies um, that, that's also a very tricky question i mean uh, when we look at, at companies to buy firstly we're only looking at, at well-managed company with healthy profit margins and a healthy profit margin for us is that we would like to increase the margin on the group and 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 having you know a platform for uh, accelerating that margin over time. So we look at uh, companies with, with a profit margin well about 10%. Um, but then if we look at, at the niches, it's really about you can have a, a, a niche that is defined as a, a specific country, for example. You build a leading position in, in, in Denmark or Norway specifically. And it's very, there are entry barriers for, for other competitors to get into that country. That could be specific country demands or whatever. That could be niche. 
Or you can work as the last company we bought, Polar Term, that is building really, really big mobile heater units. They are, for example, selling to the U.S. Army. And they are really, you know, looking for really high quality products that giving high uh, heating effects. And that is a typical niche, a global niche that not so many companies are interested to invest in because the market is not big enough. Uh, and then if you have a strong position at niche and that niche is has an underlying growth, th- then you can, as a company and as an owner, have a, a nice development over time. Let's talk about M&A then, given you said you've done 51 acquisitions, probably more now, at Bergman and Bevin. Um, let's talk about the mobile heating company. What, what did you specifically like about that? No, the, the polar term, going back again, we are really looking at the financials. So, so the, the margin is very, very good. Uh, we look at capital efficiency. So the, the, the profit of working capital is, is above the 45% that we're looking for. And, and that is kind of defined in that this is not, so, um, this is not um, requiring so much capital to grow. So, so we see a potential to grow that business, and it it will will done without you know uh, big um, uh, working capital demands. And and then they have uh, uh, they have a niche that they are addressing, and they are you know in top three in that niche worldwide. And that niche has an underlying growth. I think that was a very good fit uh, with our uh, acquisition criteria. And just just briefly, before we dive into more detail on that acquisition, um, EBITDA over working capital, why is this a good metric to use for a product company versus a a distributor? I, I would say we use the same measurement if it's a distribution or a product company, it's a simplified return on capital employed. Uh, and since uh, we don't typically have big capex in our companies, so this is a good kind of simple estimate of a, a return on capital employed. And it's also a measurement that uh, all people can relate to. Because uh, working capital is in our world, it's inventory, it's, it's uh, payables and so forth. So that's things that people can relate to in, the, in their daily work and can do something about. So, so that makes that we can put targets and activities around to, to improve that ratio uh, across the companies. only makes sense if the company doesn't have large tangible assets and they're, they're manufacturing these own, their own products. Right, but you'd have to include that. But if you look at our product companies, uh, we, we love uh, product companies that have uh, owned the IP, but have outsourced the production, and that's the, the uh, very common. If you look at our product companies, very few of them own their own product facilities. So then the the the, the asset base looks similar to a distributor. Yes, but just higher margin. So. What are the multiples that you see in you know, Apolotherm and, and, and elsewhere today? The, the, the multiples, the transaction multiples that, you, that you're seeing, you target. 
Yeah, we target uh, the EV EBTA multiples in the range of four to eight. And uh, I would say we are in the middle of that range in average. So six times EBITDA, not just EBITDA. Okay. Yes. EBITDA. EBITDA. Okay. Yeah. And and in terms of what what do you target revenue wise? Um, you know, just certain size company that you that you can that you think is a sweet spot. We we don't look at revenue. <laughs> uh, we look at earnings uh, or profits. Uh, but but we say our sweet spot is companies with a, with an earning around in in the range of one to two million euro, and we then like them to have a profit margin well above the ten percent, and this implies that then the turnover is in the range of five to fifty million euros. So it's quite small companies, but that's the typical characteristic if you look at you know leading companies addressing niches. We are not interested in in you know companies with with a 100 million turnover being number five in, in their market. Even if the market is great and a lot of opportunities. But it is, if you look at you know, profit margins, typically if you look at niches, they typically have higher profit what margins. What is the range roughly? Because it's obviously okay. well above 10%. Is it 20, 20 to 30% EBITA margin or 25 to 35%? What's the range? Uh, I would say the most common is to be in the range of 10 to 20. But you can find companies in, in the range of 30 to 40 as well, but, but that, is, that is more rare. And who, how competitive is the bidding process for these companies? Polarturn, for example. Um, I mean, they, they are in, in the range and, and not, not at the top of the range. Uh, so I'm still surprised that uh, the compet competition isn't that fierce as you could expect. But are you mainly competing? Is it an auction process or is it is it private transactions? What do you typically... If we look at the two latest platforms acquisition we have done, that's actually both in Finland. It's Polar Tem is the latest one. And the before that is called Retco. And the Retco was outside uh, an auction process. where. But I think, I mean, uh, the, the, the competition in, in those auction process is typically not private equity companies because the companies are too small, the markets are too small for them. And, and if you have, you know, an earning in the range of two to, to one to two million euro, it's too expensive for, you know, typ a, a typical private uh, family office and those type of players. So I think there's a sweet spot in terms of valuation in that range. So who do you come up against typically? We, we could come up to, um, in some rare instances, uh, industrial players that think this niche kind of adds to their uh, current businesses. Like your former, former Bergman and Bevin <laughs> companies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but we also find our peers in some instances, uh, Swedish local ones or other international ones. How do you look at, end market and like a high quality type of niche market because i you know looking across lagerkrans zindu trade you know bergman and bevin you, know, you you have different kind of focuses you know some construction manufacturing some people in like the medical technology like how do you look at how do you think about that when you're making acquisition 
I wouldn't say it's not so dependent on on the industry. Of course, as I said earlier, you know, electronics and and telecom uh, typically very big customers. I, I think you need to to either address uh, markets where where the customer is not um, uh, so big, the customer uh, kind of is not so consolidated as as a customer base. Um, but then I think, you know, a lot of different industries adopt a different segment. If you looked at those niche companies, uh, they have healthy, you know, profit margins. So I don't think it's so dependent on, you know, what type of industries you're addressing. It's really about finding those niches within those industries and those companies having a strong position in that niche. But is it, like, for example, Indutrade, they only have 43% of sales proprietary products but they have high margins. So why? To my knowledge, they have really gone the path of find, finding, you know, distribution companies uh, addressing niches without having, you know, big multinational supplier uh, on one hand and, and big international con- customer on the other end. So they have found, you know, uh, niches where a distributor, where, where the customer is not that price sensitive. And the, the 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 supplier is not uh, directing prices or or having multi distribution that is typically um, hurting the margins uh, if you work as a distributor. So, Indutrade are more of a purer value added distributor than Lago products, for example. They are. So, I'm I'm a seller. I run I run a business for 25 years, looking to retire. Come to Bergman and Bevin. How do you typically structure earnouts or incentivize me to you know, really pass over the company and, 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 and keep it in the best interests of both myself and Bergman and Bevan? Yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, the, the incentivize from our perspective, the, the purpose is to ensure um, a controlled succession over time. And, and if um, the, the people, uh, would like to phase out by by any reason in the near term. We typically construct an earnout uh, ranging from one to three years, and the earnout is then uh, based on the profit during that period. So that's one way to incentivize to make sure we have aligned interest during that transition period. Uh, in like in polar term, as an example, uh, uh, there were four owners, and two would like to retire, and two would, would like to remain in the company. And, and for the two one who want to remain, um, they, they kept some shares within Polar Term. And then we created a put call options that enables uh, them or us to, to call on that option uh, in, in time. But I, if I remember correctly, that first window is in, in four years from now. That's also a way to ensure that People remain in the company, having an operational role, and, and are committed to, to stay at least for for some years to make sure we have time to get into the company and, and get to know each other and, and solve potential you know transition issues that that is uh, to be solved. And so you're only buying, in some cases, like ninety five percent of the business, or ninety. Yes. yes, typically. So just in terms of typical acquisition, so somebody comes across your desk. You look at the EBITDA margin, has to be well above 10%. Yes. E- EBITDA over working cap. At least 45. 
at least forty-five, and that's got to be. And and how do you how do you calculate working capital? It's basically um, uh, inventory, uh, payables, and uh, so is it uh, supply debt and payables. I'm receiving. I'm receiving. Yeah, receivables. Yes. Okay, and I guess there's not really accounting adjustments massively. Maybe the inventory has to be similar. What's the biggest? When do you typically make a mistake? Looking historically, uh, since I've been acquiring, you know, 60 companies during my lifetime, mm. I can actually see some patterns when 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 acquisition has been less successful. And one common thing is actually dependency on one customer or one supplier. You can through the DD process, and I've been in those uh, many times, where, where you really get the impression that there is no reason and, and no um, plan or or any option or possibilities for a customer to phase you out, but that something happens along the way. Uh, they change their their products, or something is happening in that company. They sell it off to another company, whatever. And then, when you are very dependent on one single customer, uh, then it's very difficult to quickly recover from from big, you know, revenue drops. What What's the size that would get you worried as a percentage of revenue from a customer or supplier? I think you know it should be a lo- below twenty-five uh, percent for the top one. Yeah, and top five. Do you look at top five or top ten? Is that is that commitment? Yeah, we look at that as well. Uh, but uh, I mean, uh, I think it's top five is like seventy, eighty percent. I typically don't have a problem. Okay. Uh, as long as it's you know one of them is not too big. Right. So what the top one has to be below twenty-five percent yeah. at least, and then. Top five can be eighty percent, but they're kind of evenly distributed. Yeah. Is there any other pat- patterns that you've seen in your mistakes? Yeah, that's one of the pattern. You know, you 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 kind of misjudge the, the customer dynamics. Uh, I think that is kind of the. I'm and then actually surprised of uh, how few kind of acquisitions that has been really really going the wrong direction. How, how many? I would say of you know. Less than one of ten, uh, and then I would say at least half have given you know uh, the, the the earnings level expected and and above that, and maybe then you have twenty thirty percent that is is below, but you have you know at least uh, as many that are above that than than below the expectation earning level. Well, as you said, roughly ten percent go bad. Yeah. So, so you've done sixty. So six. You can six acquisitions have gone bad, and 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 mainly that's because of the supplier or yes. customer concentration. Yes. Any other reasons that really go wrong? Or well, I think I would say it di- different different reasons in 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 the different cases. Actually, I can't say it's it's one single main reasons. If you have a big Majority part of your sales through a customer, that customer to stop buying. Uh, I, I, there are different reasons. I would say in all cases. Okay, but, but the only the only core common pattern was that they had a supplier and the customer concentration, and they all left for different reasons. Yes. Yes. Okay. So if you one see that- respect I had in some cases, if of course that you, but that's that's easier to to address. Uh, um, you don't get the right team in place. 
Mm. But, but that is kind of easier and quicker to fix than if you lose, you know, a customer representing 70% of your business. It takes time to compensate for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so if you if you just make hard, do you have hard rules now? Of like no customer has to be above 25% or as I wouldn't buy the company and, you know, and that could eliminate a lot of the, the challenges. Yes, we have. So what else worries you? In terms of? When you buy a company, was there anything that is in the back of your mind that you're like, oh, wow, I make sure this could worry me or? No, but it's always this succession topic if there is something on the table and, and the management team. When you have a succession, you need to make sure you get a good management team on place, replacing the management facing out. And, and as we are working very decentralized, uh, we need to get very good management in place. And that is, of course, something that uh, always is a challenge. How do you do that? I, we liaise typically with 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 the with the, the with the people facing out. They know the industries. They know then they have a network. Um, they know what you know competences and skills is necessary. Uh, so, so we join forces in those aspects and then do some um, assessment uh, with different kind of perspectives, but we do it jointly. And I think that's very important that we leverage, you know, the people who knows the business and, and the industry and, and having a network. And promote from someone, yeah. like the second yes. or third in yeah. line at the company. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I find fascinating about all, all the serial acquired models is the people like yourself at, the, you know, at HQ, the very few people making the acquisitions. It, it's very hard for you to fully understand the end markets, you know, and the customer mm -hmm. dynamics. And so how do you how do you think about how do you get comfortable with when you go into a new very niche area, a niche engineering sub segment of a market or how do you get comfortable with the market structure and the value add and the. When you're buying into these companies, do you just do you rely on the company itself, or how do you get comfortable? Oh, yeah, because you look at the numbers only and the history. Yeah, we look at the numbers, but of course we do a commercial DD, and that commercial DD typically also include uh, in one stage of the process customer interviews, and then of course in that commercial DD we, we typically also get connected with the industry experts and and to get a better understanding for the industry and such. But, but to some extent, we also use external resources to help us in doing that, to make, you know, a, a focused effort around the, the commercial issues. Is there any risk of like obsolescence of the technologies you're buying? Like, obviously, the mobile heating business doesn't seem like it could be necessarily become obsolete. But some of these other serial acquirers like in the, in the UK, they buy, a, call it, higher-end scientific instrumentation companies that yes. might... You know, how do you think about obsolescence? Yeah, it's a very good question, and, and we have that in our acquisition criteria list. <laughs> we, we like them to have long product life cycles. So, I mean, my experience tells me, you know, if you have companies having short product life cycles, you need to put a lot of effort in R&D, and, and you never know uh, how the market will look like and your competitive products will look like in the next two, three years from now. So the, the risk of being, you know, out competing from leading position is, is significant higher than if you have a company with, you know, product life cycle of 10 to 15 years. So that is one of our criteria, actually. And how do you think about R&D when the life cycle is so long? 
but typically they are not as R and D inten- intensive. So, so that's kind of the, the, the good thing. It's, it's and and the R and D effort is typically then uh, not big big changes because it's not uh, not so much thing thing has happening. It's not new electronics or new ships or or mm. new technology. Uh, if you look in in the steel area, for example. Or in in you know the tools areas or. But do you worry about that? Like if the, well, because it's interesting because there's some companies that do serial acquisition, they might put, they might sell, call it higher end systems for quite expensive prices, not consumables, for example, like mm-hmm. like you guys, and they're on product long product life cycles, and so my question was always, how do they make sure they can keep on. You know, make sure they get the next product cycle. You know, so how do you think about making sure you can, you know, if you buy a company that has a ten-year life cycle, how do you ensure that you're either spending or have the organic growth internally to make sure you can not miss the next iteration of the industry? Let, let's take one of our biggest product company. It's called Sphere. They are market leading in the Nordic sector in fastening elements. And, and of course, they do product development into of, you know, improving their fasting technology. And that's very much driven from their customers. For example, they, they're working with the prefab segment, you know, uh, factories building houses in, 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 on the factory floor. And they are really good engineers, you know, try to optimize the work process and, and the, you know, the, minimize the material used and so forth. And here, SV, of course, together with the customers, is developing new fasting products. But, but you know, it's not a big, big R&D effort. Mm. It's about, you know, one technician talking to their engineers. You know, they have an ID, they do a prototype, they test the prototype. Uh, so it's not kind of million-dollar development exercise. So it's what, it's under 5% of revenue that you spend on yeah, R&D? Yeah, definitely under 5%. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Then you develop that product, maybe the yeah. product life cycle, that fasting element is 10 years. Nothing is changing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a nice, yeah. it's more durable. Yeah. What, what what percentage of your revenue as a group would you estimate is OPEX versus CAPEX for the customer? Uh, what do you mean by CAPEX for the customer? So like, for example, if I'm a customer and I'm I'm spending CapEx, a couple of expenditures on a big investment or I'm building something you know, and I'm yeah. buying the products, that would be a CapEx spend, which is more like irregular. Um, yeah. Basically, like what percentage is recurring revenue effectively, like consumable revenue year on year, more more stable versus lumpier revenue, which is more, more tied to CapEx for the customer, which is harder to predict. Uh, I, if we look at our business, I would say at 95% is more consumables. It's not about uh, CapEx investment for the customer. It's really about uh, something they need to run their operations. Even in construction space or manufacturing, yes. it's, it's all I mean, the fasting element, for example. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. is no investments. Yeah, yeah. We, we own a company called FireSeal. They are doing... Um, um, fire protection when when you walk with, with walls and those type of thing, that is not you know uh, an investment. It's something you need to build the ship mm, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and isolate the walls in the ship. So so typically we don't sell investment products related to the customer capex, which I think is a great benefit now when there's a little bit you know 
uh, uncertain about the, the business uh, environment where it's going because the, if it's uncertainty, the, the first thing customers do is take down the the, the capex and the investments. So, like you, forty percent of your revenue is con- to construction. How yeah. how correlated are you to construction, home building, construction demand? I would say quite limited because once again we're selling mainly consumables. And of course, that is dependent on the activity level within the construction and the industry sector. But if we look at KPIs that mostly correlate to our kind of um, demand, uh, definitely within the construction sector is the number of employees in the sector. Because the workplace safety directly correlates to the number of people working within the construction sector. And also, for example, uh, typically all use fastening element. So, so... <laughs> But won't that decline if the volume declines of the industry? Surely the employers, the number of employees will decline. Yes, but it's correlated to that. For example, in the Nordics, there has been a big decline in in new building, uh, start of new buildings investments. But but that doesn't affect our companies because the number of people still working in the construction sector is the same. <laughs> why why is that? <laughs> because there's a lot of things going on, uh, ongoing projects. And there is actually still uh, a lack of construction workers in the Nordics. So it's a scare, scarcity of that. And and it's the same in the industry. If we look at kind of the KPIs, actually the number of employees within the industry sector that is the most relevant KPI for for our industrial industrial customer base. And and that is also uh, not affected yet. That's interesting. So it's actually more the number of employees that matter rather than the number of houses. Yes. And that's not, that's not, co- well. But then, of course, if you stop build houses today, you stop right. invest, of then course. in two years' time or one year's time, there will be less people working in that sector. It's maybe a lag, yeah. Yes. Well, and then in the Nordics, it's pretty interesting, right? Because the, the labor cost is so high. So if I'm a company, if I'm an industrial company or if I'm a construction business, it's hard for me to cut cost in in labor. Yes. So maybe trying to find you know products that can help me improve my productivity or my my cost is makes it makes like this these businesses pretty interesting. That, that that's what we we we, um, we have as a general concept across the group. Uh, we 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 encourage our companies to develop products that improve customer efficiency. Mm. And safety, because workplace safety is is incre- the demand is increasing in the Nordics, and as you say, the, the labor cost is high. So if you find, for example, fasting elements or, or systems that enables them to work, you know, twenty percent faster, the product cost doesn't matter more or less because the labor cost is so high. So how do you look at the organic growth of your companies? Yeah, uh, first level, we we don't talk about top-line growth. When we talk about organic growth, we talk about organic profit growth. So so that's one thing. Why is Uh, that? Because you don't, you know, uh, pay your bills with (laughs) revenue. Turnover, revenue. You pay your bills, uh, not even with profit, you pay it with your cash flow. (laughs) But, but, But anyway... Uh, once again, as I said, we are now going through the process in the group, you know, to phase out low uh, margin, high volume businesses. 
So we're not focusing on 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 the top line. We're focusing on you know making sure that we have a profit growth over time. So you mean like cutting cutting suppliers that don't give you any margin? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. Right. And that's mainly within the wholesale business. Right. Right. So you shouldn't expect our wholesale business as such to grow top line. Right. So your revenue is not. How do you expect? You mentioned you want to double double EBITDA. Over the EBIT. next, e bits only yeah. over the next you know, five hundred million. I think you mentioned. So how how do you expect revenue to evolve in that five years? And or you don't even. I, I actually haven't really? done that calculation. Oh wow! You don't even look at it. Okay. okay. No. <laughs> I mean, we we have um, uh, if we look about our governance model, uh, we work in a very decentralized way, and and. Uh, that translates into all our companies are doing a yearly business plan, where the, that's kind of uh, dressed in figures. Of course, then profit development and profit overwork and capital development, and, and then they also make uh, uh, um, the, define the key strategic initiatives for the business, and then we discuss it in the board. And when then we when we agree on it, we decide on that, and and then we also have something we call long term targets. And that's something we had discussed in the board where we jointly define what is the potential of this business, given the business model, the market conditions and so forth. And that is something the company should reach within five years. So we would like the company to have a steady development towards those long-term targets over time. So if I look at the group long-term target, if I accumulate all the companies, we will be well above the 500 million EBIT in 25-26. But of course, not all of them will, will reach that, maybe. But, but still, there are a great potential in the companies that we own today. Mm. I want to get onto the, that in a moment. So when, when, the, when, the, when the subsidiaries send you a report every, I don't know, is it every month or every quarter? Month, every month. What, what are the numbers they give you? What, what, do, you look, what do you ask them to provide? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's revenue. It's yeah. gross margin. It's... Uh, is the, the the cost, and then is uh, if they have any amortizations, yeah. if they don't add an acquisition, they have amortizations, and and then we get to an EBIT, and that is actually the level we measure them on 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 the, on the PNL, because uh, the the kind of the financial element is uh, managed by the on the group level, and, and then on the balance sheet we look at uh, those working capital elements. And together also with the cash flow. So we have the cash flow on, on a monthly basis. And and they how are they incentivized those? The, the MDs are incentivized uh, um, uh, uh, related to the, the, the profit they deliver in relation to the target we have set uh, in, together with the profit of working capital ratio. And also your the stock option plan that you guys have got, that's also based on... EBITDA growth. Actually, the stock option plan uh, in Sweden works like uh, we have a number of stock options, and then we we divide them along the, the senior management team, and then uh, you have to to purchase that option, and that kind of purchase price is is set and not by the company. It's more like this was the fifteen sec price, or is that right? Fifteen dollars, yeah. fifteen euro uh, sec. Hundred seventy six thousand shares. Right. Okay. Yeah. So so then uh, so that is not uh, directly linked to kind of um, 
the performance of your company. It's the price. Yeah. It's it's more related also, and and the number of options is more related to your seniority. And and your and your stock holding as well. I've seen you own options of 44,000 options was from last year. Is that right? That could be correct. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have uh, uh, three hundred and thirty thousand shares. Did you did you purchase those outright yourself? Or yes. The company don't do. No, I purchased myself. Okay, good, interesting. I have skill in the game. Yeah, I like it. Um, so when you back to this M and A, when you you're buying a company, how do you you've got the you've got an EBITDA margin, you've got an EBIT, EBITDA over working capital. How do you think about like the re- return? Do you calculate like a a DCF for ten years or a and calculate you know have put some assumptions on revenue and margins in 10 years and discount that and see what the return would be? Or how do you look at the return? Yeah, uh, firstly, we, we don't buy to sell. Yeah. So, so we are really a long-term owner. So, so when we are acquiring company, we have a long-term perspective. Uh, uh, secondly, we have trade facility on the group level, so we don't place any loans on the company we buy. Uh, so, so when we're making, you know, an M and A uh, or an acquisition calculation and, and and the return, we make a simplified DCF calculation. And that's that's how we operate. What five years? So, so, so simple five year. Yeah, and and it's not about the termination value in the end and those type of uh, components. So it's really, you know, we we kind of more have the assumption, okay. What, what is the kind of the sustainable earning capacity of this company over a business cycle? Yeah. And, and, and then uh, we don't uh, calculate that uh, that um, earning will go up, neither go down. So you just assume that, uh, okay, th- this is an earning capacity we feel comfortable with. And that will give us a health return. Um, and, and if there's no big capex, uh, we do it even more simply DCF calculation. Well, so you mentioned you have a facility. So do you, do you how do you finance the acquisitions typically? We, we currently have facilities enable us to acquire. Uh, it should be like eighty million euro. But well, so you don't put any cash. You don't so, use any so, cash to to finance the acquisitions. Now we pay the company in cash, but we use the credit facility we have. Yeah, yeah. To kind of finance that. Wow. So it's yeah, and you don't use any equity and no. And so when you're doing this DCF, it's almost like you you know you you get comfortable with the durability of the earning power. You 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 kind of assume some kind of organic growth rate and revenue base case. Yeah. Look at the five year, ten year earnings. Yeah. Calculate that and be like, well, this is going to be roughly X return, yes. low risk. Yes, I use I use my debt financing to pay it. No equity. Yes, yes. And we don't base our, our kind of return on you know high as I said profit growth in the future. It's really about establish a, a, a level that we feel comfortable earning capacity over a business cycle. Then then if there is an upside in the earning and and it's difficult to get the deal in place based on our conservative assumptions. We offer the seller an earnout, and with the argument, you know, okay, we pay for this threshold initially, cash up front. We take on that risk that you will at least lever, uh, deliver on this level, 
And then if you deliver more, the additional profit is then the basis for the earnout. And then you get a part of that as an upside. Do you aim for, like, what's the base case target return that you aim for then? Uh, we, we should get the payback within uh, four to five years. It should be paid off. Gives you 20 odd percent is what you're aiming for, right? Yes. Cash return. And how many targets roughly are there in Nordics in niche areas that, that you have in a funnel roughly? And you would be surprised. <laughs> Everyone, every serial acquirer says, <laughs> you know, they get more and more each year. I don't know where they come yeah. from. <laughs> no. uh, I don't have an exact number, but it's definitely 100 plus. And your current funnel today that you that you have? Yes. Yeah. Nordics only? Some of them are outside the Nordics, uh, but the majority in the Nordics. So that's... Then, of course, we need to separate. And then now I talk about new platforms that, you know, establish ourselves in new niches. If we talk of add-ons, uh, they are typically international. Right. So that's just platforms, new platforms into new yeah, niches. New platforms, right? yeah. And then you have add-ons that obviously is much smaller and international. Yeah. Yes. Well, how many companies can you reasonably acquire per year today? We have the ambition to acquire four to six. But but uh, if we would like to increase that path, I, I would say uh, we could at least do eight per year. What, what are the challenges in increasing the number of acquisitions per year? I, I think see, since I started, we have uh, kind of um, put more effort around acquisitions. So it's, it's a question about you know increasing the pipeline. Uh, and it takes time to work through that pipeline. Uh, I mean, you can have a first contact uh, two years ago, and, and, and then it's not for sale. And then uh, two years later, or, or you know, three or four years later, then the situation has changed, and all of a sudden, the owners are interested to discuss the sales. So it's really about you know walking, uh, having those contacts, drinking coffee together, establish a relationship, and then be the preferred buyer when the moment is there. And are you are you doing all the MA? Just yourself personally, or do you have do you delegate downwards? With three divisions heads, and uh, uh, we said that they should work seventy percent. Of the, with the companies in their divisions, and they then act as a chairman, and then 30% with acquisitions. So they, they, those uh, are the key vehicles, you know, for identify new prospects. And then we have an M&A responsibility, uh, responsible person here on the group level that gets all the um, uh, flow from the M&A community. And and go through that, and and then look into who who is the most appropriate person to to take on this acquisition opportunity. So I would say I spend like ten to twenty percent of my time on acquisitions today. Oh wow! So not not that much. No. That's good. That's really but, good. But I have brought with me some. Um, some tools and processes that we have implemented here too. Well, the reason why I ask is because many of these serial acquirers, it seems like, you know, Halmer in the UK, for example, there's a 
bunch of different. It seems like they max out. They can't acquire more than 15 to 20 per year is like the mm-hmm. limit between any organization seems to be like organizationally human capital. What are the challenges that you see getting from, from Lagercrans, for example, does seven, Indutrade does a 15, 20, they're aiming for, haven't got to 20 yet, I don't think, Indutrade. I think you guys are two to three, maybe pushing to six, like you said. What's the challenge really getting to six, seven, eight, ten per year over the next few years? No, once again, I said, I, one is to, to kind of... Um having some years working through the pipeline and building the relationships and so forth. I think also we are currently broadening our scope in terms of you know what type of areas and, and type of industries are we looking into. So we have some groundwork to do. Uh, so so I, I, I feel confident when we just get this going, we can increase the, 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 the path. Uh, but we are already stepped up. You know, this polar term uh, was... Um, and, and this retco is um, investment in unishes uh, a little bit bigger companies with, with very very healthy profit margins if you compare with the previous acquisitions made within the group so i mean wrap summarizing then it's you know what is what does make you most excited about where Bergman and Bevan is today now as i said initially i think the exciting thing is that there are great opportunities i also communicated that in in our reports that there are you know opportunities to improve the profit and the profitability and the cash flow in all our divisions so we have some great opportunities in the portfolio we already own today and, and we have started you know this acquisition path uh, and made some acquisitions uh, and, and we will continue on that and accelerate over time so once again, as I said initially, I, I think the starting point is much stronger and better than when I started Larkrans in 2007. Mm. So, so well, I think it, this is a great it, starting point. It's, re- it's really interesting to compare the, the, the two because, and, and you mentioned that the gross margin is so high for Bourbon and Bevan, but the EBIT margin is so low relative to where the others stand. And that's mainly because of the pulse evidence. So if you cut up some of the bad business from there, is there any other cost you can cut out? In that SGNA cost seems to be very high. Is there any other cost? Is it labour you can cut out or other overheads? Obviously, you've got two business models. So, can you? Is there any ways you can improve that cost structure? You, you can always improve the cost structure, <laughs> but but uh, and, and but I think you can do it marginally. No, no big cuts. Uh, bigger bigger changes will be if if we make some structural changes in the group. Like sell one of the businesses or? Yes. Yeah, is that an option? As I said, the, the, the DNA of Bauman & Bering is, is to buy, to keep, and, and we are a long-term owner. And, and I think also if we look at companies in Bauman & Bering, to, to create shareholder value, if we are selling a company, we need to match at least the multiples Bayman & Beving is valuated to. But you could probably get 10 times for for those wholesale businesses, right? Or or do you not think that? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. You're not sure? No. Because if, if you could get 10 or 20, if you could get the same multiple you're getting now for the the wholesale businesses, then it would be creating a huge amount of shareholder value because the, the businesses left should be trading at 20 times. 
the, the higher uh, the valuation, the easier the decision would be to take. Right. But is there a is there a challenge internally in selling that? Because, like you said, the culture is not to sell. Or could you spin it out as a separate public company? I mean, there there, there are there are different options uh, if you go that way. Uh, but, but once again, I mean, it's it's not part of our DNA, but, but still, I don't exclude anything. Yeah. What do investors typically misunderstand about Bourbon and Bourbon today, in your opinion? If you look in near term, I think they 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 kind of um, prolong the the the, in, the the declining investment in the construction sector on on Bourbon and Bourbon. Because they, they they maybe think we are too dependent on that sector and don't realize uh, uh, where in the construction sector we are kind of playing. I also think if you take kind of as you were mentioning earlier, if you take kind of a more long-term perspective, uh, many don't know about our hundred-year history and, and this period when we were BB tools and start to centralize and everything, and then spun off the retail business that is now they part of Aligo. And if you don't know that kind of history, it's you get maybe disappointed with the development of the group if you look historically. And if you don't understand where we are today and, and why we have this positive development as, as of the last 10 quarters. And um, uh, lastly, I would say uh, I get some questions from you know the markets. You know why is not why don't you have organic top line growth or why is it flat? And and uh, then you need to realize that we are not focusing on on top line growth at this point in time. It's really about profit growth, and and part of that is to face out as I said earlier, low margin, high volume products. And that's mainly within the wholesale business areas. And, and that is then reflected in, in the top line. It's hard to grow that top line, right? If, you, if you're if you just losing even 1%. We don't want to grow that top line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you want to grow. Yeah, I guess you want to grow the top line of the 60% of the proprietary business you have. Yeah, yeah. That I want to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The company's having a profit or working capital of about 45%. Uh, the, the target for them is to double the profit in two to three years' time. And that requires then top-line growth. But this seems pretty interesting, though, because like you said, it, Berman & Berman, with the, with the, at the current valuation and the potentially better starting point, you know, higher gross margins, lower EBIT margins. Um, yes, they have some kind of wholesale business in there that may prove to be tricky, but it does seem like there is a... You know, uh, there's no reason why Berman Berman can't get to lager crans or higher EBIT margins in the next ten years. No, I agree. Is the core that and that portfolio just just last few questions? The protective safety equipment you have and the, those products you have is that any materially different than what lager crans have in there when they started in their portfolio in terms of just the sectors and the end markets? Was it materially different? Well, they was just it's electronics they were selling mainly, right? But it was mainly components yeah. and not actually, you know, safe tools. And because you do sell some basic tools, right? Hammers and and stuff like that that I believe you sell proprietary stuff. But 
Yeah, but that's that's uh, the, the more basic uh, tools is is private labels or own brands within the Luvna, the wholesaling business. So that's not kind of really product companies or product lines. So you don't count that as actually? No. So that's part of the wholesale business? Yes. I mean, I mean, um, yeah. what we find as product companies and, and that it is then separate entities within the group, those are product companies that are competitive without the wholesaler. <laughs> right, right, right. But of right. course, if you have a whole channel, a big customer base, and you can um, have your own brands, uh, then it makes sense. Got it. So you don't actually include those proprietary tool hammers and stuff in your proprietary mix of 68%? No. That you, wow. But that's that's obviously helping the margin of the wholesale business. So. Yeah, but that's a small, small part of our business. Right. Um, last couple of questions. What what drives you? What do you enjoy doing? Every like, what, what what do you enjoy about this work? Obviously, you've done M and A for years. What, what what keeps you excited every day to get up and find good? I, I, I think it's very exciting when I see all the opportunities and possibilities within the group. And, and to really uh, get, uh, firstly, everyone to realize the opportunities and, and get uh, the whole organization, you know, moving forward. And I say, I think we have done some great last quarters and I see a future potential there. So I think it's very, when you see you get some tractions, you see the opportunities, uh, the possibilities, and you get some tractions, th that gives me a lot of energy. And, and we're currently seeing that. So I really enjoy the work and enjoy the team we have here. And I feel very confident. Do you see yourself doing this for like you know, a lifetime, 20, 20, 30 years, or just more of a short-term gig for you? I'm 56 years old, so, so I have a 10-year horizon. Uh, but, but let's see what's happened after that. <laughs>